Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You know, I feel like if you grew up, I don't know, in the last 20 years, you're probably a lot more familiar with dystopia and dystopian visions than you are with utopian visions, which, you know, after all, came first. Uh, We're going to talk about utopian visions today, about the notion of a utopia, uh, about ways in which that notion has been put into play in real life, uh, about intentional communities. uh, And we have terrific... I'm so excited about this show. I, I have not been so pepped up in quite some time. We have terrific guests uh, to do that. And so let's get going without further ado. So uh, for the first segment, uh, uh, Avery Truffleman uh, is the host of the podcast, Nice Try! Exclamation point. Uh, the first season of which is all about utopian efforts, uh, about people who tried to design a better world. The second season of the podcast will be released in the fall. I'm excited. I'm hooked. I want to hear whatever is comes next. Uh, and for two segments here, uh, first and second ones, uh, Akash Kapoor is the author of Better to Have Gone. Love, Death, and the Quest for Utopia in Auroville. Uh, and I just want to say, this is one of the books of the year. There's sort of no question about this. This is a, an amazing um, memoir slash history slash, um, I don't even know. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of slashes in there. Uh, a lot of things going on uh, in this book. So, um, uh, Akash Kapoor, I think maybe I'll begin with you because this is something that you've written about not only in this book but elsewhere. Maybe we should begin by introducing people to the origins of at least the word utopia. We can go back further to Plato, but it's uh, a guy uh, that we know uh, either from <laughs> from uh, from Wolf Hall or A Man for All Seasons, depending on whether we want the sort of malevolent or benevolent version of him. So t- tell us who gives us utopia. Sure. Well, the the uh, word is coined by uh, Sir Thomas More, uh, who, as you know from Wolf Hall, was an uh, English nobleman. Um, but he he actually wrote a book called Utopia, and and there's some debate about the the origins of the word utopia and what it actually means. But uh, you know, generally, most people think it comes from from the Greek word. Um, and basically means no place, which is a good place to start with utopia, because I think part of part of the reason utopia has a bad rep and has a bad image is because it is, by definition, unattainable. Right. And there's also a way in which, um, you know, utopia feels like a reaction formation, what psychoanalysis would call a reaction formation, uh, an attempt to build something uh, to quell your anxieties or, or sense of fear and loathing uh, about something that's actually happened. In the case of Moore, you almost feel like it might be, it's an alternative to him, right? He's the, you know, the, the epitome of religious intolerance. So he invents this utopia in which religious tolerance is practiced. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought. Uh, I think it's right that utopia, one of the useful ways of thinking about utopia is less as a place that exists or will exist, but as a critique of what exists and as an imagination of alternatives to what exists. Um, and so, yeah, I think the idea of utopia as a reaction um, is an interesting one, though one that you know many utopians might reject because they see themselves as kind of existing completely in a different universe and, and a completely different alternative that would not be defined in opposition to what is. 
Although, Avery, just to go through your whole podcast series, it's hard to let go of the reaction formation idea. People are creating uh, utopias uh, because they're because of something that just recently happened. I mean, even like Biosphere 2 is one of your utopias, and that's clearly a lot of people worried uh, about all, all the danger signs, all the blinking lights that are flashing on the dashboard of the world. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, in a weird way, you know, a utopia, seeking utopia is a quest for control. Like, we didn't have any choice to this society we were born into, into this planet we were born into, in the case of the creation of Biosphere 2, which is a totally bonkers story, like a crazy (laughs) bonkers story. But very long, bonkers story short, I mean, it was created as like an alternative world. What if we have to go to space? What if we have to exist somewhere else? Can we create a a synthetic version of the whole Earth's ecology and live off of it and farm it and tend it and be self-sufficient? And it ended up just being a complete uh, fiasco disaster. The people inside basically starved. Um, But it was really in pursuit of like, there has to be another way. And so many of the utopias, you know, that we at least talk about on Nice Try are people trying to escape their class, their race, their environment. These, it's, it's, it's seizing this idea of like, maybe there can be a choice. Maybe I can find another way. I don't have to accept this world the way it is. And I think, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this, but I think that's why we have to continue to reach for this impossible place because we do have to believe that there is a choice. Like, I think we do have to believe that we can seize some version of control into these like set of circumstances we've been born into. I think also there's a little bit of a sense that many a failed utopia has kind of a silver lining. And, and you know, I would even push back uh, based entirely on your narrative uh, about it uh, yeah. on Biosphere 2. There's a sense when the people walk out of there, yes, in a, in a way that eerily mimics uh, Jamestown, which uh, hopefully we can talk about if there's time, uh, but in a way that they, they've been sneaking seeds that they were supposed to be planting to grow more produce, and instead they're getting so hungry that they're you know, very sneakily actually eating the seeds. But, you know, as they come out, I mean, they stayed in the amount of time they were supposed to be there. They come yeah. out. They're Kind of, they're yeah, they they're a little gaunt, but um, but they're they're kind of healthier. They can't even eat the crap that we eat, right? <laughs> That's true. No, you bring up a very good point, which is that we need to trouble our notion of what success and failure is and what utopia is, because right, just just like there is no such thing as a perfect place, there's no such thing as like complete success. Every endeavor will have its failures. And I think a huge reason a lot of utopias do really uh, spiral into dangerous territory is that people are afraid to admit failure in their pursuit for utopia. Like, for example, in the case of Biosphere 2, I mean, it succeeded in a lot of ways. It made some genuine scientific discoveries. The people inside this glass palace in the middle of the Arizona desert really did live there for two years. Um, But I think, you know, it's 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 too easy to just call something a success or a failure and i think the people who were in charge of the experiment were very hell-bent on making sure everything looked good and everything was fine and they were unwilling to admit like smaller shortcomings and i mean 
we can see this in any, I've been thinking about this a lot, looking at what's going on in Afghanistan right now, like an inability to admit small failures incrementally along the way can lead to like giant, giant uh, mistakes that can be quite dangerous. And so, yeah, it, it, you know, in, in a weird way, I want to, I want to redact my statement. Like it wasn't a complete debacle, but a lot of things went wrong right. <laughs> in and, this particular search for uh, utopia. Uh, and I, I think I'm not even going to explain why, because I, I want people to listen to the episode, but you know, things are going wrong when Steve Bannon shows up. That's almost never oh, a yeah. good sign for your utopian <laughs> vision that Steve Bannon is taking an interest in what you're doing. So, um, you know, um, Akash, I was actually on the Auroville official website today, uh, mm-hmm. and there was a, there's a, like an FAQ thing on it. And one of the things, uh, it made me think a little bit about the other way in which, one of the other ways utopias can uh, run the risk of venturing into dangerous territories. There was the sentence, the use of law courts or referral to other, uh, other outsiders is considered unacceptable and to be avoided if possible. And, you know, I mean, implicit in almost every utopian enterprise or bargain is the, is the notion that we know better, right? We know a better way to do this than, than our existing society. It's what you just said a few seconds ago. It's an implied critique of the way things are. But, mm-hmm. but there's a limit to how much you can do that, right? Because it, it, we're, it's not Jamestown. It's not a place that's way, way far away. Every, every place is cheek to jowl with another place now. And maybe you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that the, the kind of tension between the self-contained utopia that's sort of a laboratory for a new world and trying to create a model for, you know, that will then propagate outwards and change the world, the tension between that and the world itself and the way it's sort of undeniable and crowding in is always a, a problem in these utopias. Um, one of the ways that that I saw, you know, growing up in Oroville, and I think you often see in these utopias where it plays out most um, strongly is in, is in the economy, because there's always an urge to kind of recreate the economy, get rid of money, create a more egalitarian society, all of which, I mean, I think are very uh, noble ambitions. And, you know, I don't by any means um, have, have a problem with the ambition, but it's just, it's very tough, it, you know, and I have scenes in my book where they're like, they're early on, they're going to start a bakery and they're not going to, they're not going to charge money. And they come up with this kind of like circuitous way because nobody can buy bread and yet there's not enough money to actually bake the bread. So you have to go buy, you have to go cycle somewhere and get your grains and then bring it to the bakery and the bakery will, you know, bake your bread for you. But you end up with these kind of totally convoluted schemes um, so yeah, I, I think that, that that tension is very real. I also just wanted to say on on the the earlier thing that you guys were just talking about, like I don't think that the problem with utopia is failure. I mean, you know, failure is is a very subjective notion, um, and and failure can be noble. And as you say, there's often a silver lining to failure. I think the problem, and maybe this is something that Avery was getting at, the problem is what happens on the way to failure. Um, that many of these places stray into very dark places in their desperate quest for success. That's a really interesting way to put it. And uh, I, I want to follow up on that in just a second. Although since we're on the, the whole subject of putting bread on the table, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak, um, there, I mean, there's another aspect to this and there's another way that this can go uh, and uh, one that you're both very familiar with. So every one of your episodes is about Oneida. So this is another thing that can happen is that even even a utopian intentional community that may start out with an idea of operating very, very differently from the rest of society you know, a lot of them kind of figure out, particularly the ones that last a while, figure out, you know, actually we could make stuff and sell it back to the, you know, to the outsiders. We could we could do stuff. And I mean, Oneida is an amazing example of that. 
Yeah, Oneida is a very interesting example. Oneida is a silverware company that still exists today. It's actually one of the largest in the game. And it began truly as almost a textbook example of an intentional community in like the mid 1800s. And um, I mean, one of the interesting things about it is they started out as a very, like they were into polyamory and gender parity and all these really radical ideas for the mid 1800s that were totally antithetical to the idea of a conventional family life. And then by the mid 20th century, they were selling these like products for your table, which is, you know, which were marketed to the traditional family unit in their little white picket fences. And so they really did this kind of strange about face. But I think, you know, another thing that comes up with a lot of these intentional communities is so much of the change was generational. There was this whole generation of children who grew up in this intentional community feeling like outsiders, feeling cut off from the world, wanting a sense of larger belonging, wanting to explore. And I mean, they basically rebelled against their parents' values and their parents' values weren't really able to keep up with the times. And so that's a really common thread we see across a lot of uh, intentional communities uh, that the second generation doesn't quite agree with the way they were raised. And then, you know, the leadership can't really uh, control them in the way they could perhaps with their parents. And, and at a certain point, they run, to, to our previous uh, point, they run afoul of the law, too. There were certain things, yeah. ways in which uh, the leader of Oneida wanted to sexually initiate very young women uh, that were, I mean, even just the what looked to the outside world like adultery was illegal at the time. There, there was, were a, a lot of those kinds of problems. But, you know, Akash, she brings up such a great point, which is, you know, there's sort of two things things that that create stress and strain uh, on utopian intentional communities. One of them is size. You know, can, there's some kind of magical limit. I, I think in one of your uh, New Yorker pieces about this, uh, uh, you quote somebody uh, saying, I don't see how it can go more than a thousand people. I think it's the person who's in that place in Virginia. I, I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know how could be how could it be bigger than that uh, before things start to go pop. And the other one is what Avery was just talking about, which is the multi-generational questional question. I mean, Auroville's kind of amazing, right? Um, Auroville's more than 50 years old. Yeah. Um, I think the multi-generational thing is, is really key and it's probably linked to the, uh, to the size question. I mean, somebody said something to me once and I, I didn't manage to fit this in the book, but somebody said something about Oroville to me when I was growing up that was really powerful. He said, you know, Oroville worked really well um, as long as people didn't have families. And it was the minute people started having kids that they sort of lost their commitment to the ideals. And I, and I think what he was getting at there is the fact that um, it's fairly easy to deny things to ourselves and to sort of, you know, commit ourselves to ideals. But once we start having genes that need our attention and that that need um, our resources, uh, the, the commitment kind of starts fraying. Uh, so I think the the generational aspect of, of utopias is very hard. I think in Orville's case, it is one of, one of the interesting things that it's, it's probably at this point one of the longest lasting, if not the most, uh, in, if not the longest lasting intentional community around. It's been around for about 53 years. Um, and, you know, we could t- we could talk about why that is. But part of the reason is because I think there actually aren't very rigid hierarchical rules as there are in many utopias, which does sometimes dim some of the original idealism and animating fire of the place. But it also means that people are a little bit freer. Uh, there's a little more room to acknowledge the complexity and the nuance of human nature. Um, and frankly, you know, people can if people want to pay more attention to their families and to the ideals or maybe for a certain period of their lives, there's room to do that. 
Right. I think I, I'm going to hold some of this for our, our second segment because I want to talk more mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. about it. But I think you could also make the case that Oroville survived uh, the, a kind of crisis that would have doomed most communities. I mean, Oroville had a, effectively a civil war uh, at a certain point. Uh, Absolutely. And, and and if you see the history of, of these communities, whether it's Oneida or whether it's, you know, many of these communities over time, I mean, they often hit a crisis point after the passing of their founder, right? Because the founder is the kind of the animating influence and then the force that holds them together. Uh, and then the founder is gone as, you know, despite their attempts to kind of conquer mortality and reinvent human nature, the founder does end up leaving. Um, and then and then these places often tend to fall apart. And that certainly happened in Orville. Orville was unusual because it pulled back from the precipice that I think many of these places uh, tip over when the founders no more there. You know, Avery, we should say a little bit about just the idea of communal living. I mean, I think a lot of the kind of hippie communes um, that that sprung up in the late 60s, early 70s, were also a reaction formation to a kind of seeking of loneliness that was documented in the work of sociologists at the time, Philip Slater, David Reisman, writing about the, the, the pursuit of loneliness, the lonely America, and the idea that what people really wanted was one or two acres of land in a subdivision where they didn't really have to constantly come in contact with with other people. They thought that that would make them happy. Uh, the communitarian ideal uh, is sort of the opposite of, of that. But it, it's that doesn't mean it's easy, right? I mean, in, in case after case, a whole bunch of people living together, trying to share a relatively small space uh, is, is not necessarily uh, an easy project. Maybe you could say a little bit about what you found there. Yeah, yeah, entirely. I mean, it's really interesting because when you think about it, humans come together to collaborate in all kinds of ways. We come together in business settings and offices and factories. I mean, people are able to collaborate, but there has been this idea. I mean, going back as far as Aristotle, there's been this idea of the separate spheres, like the home life and the public life. And then it became this distinctly American, distinctly Christian ideal around the Victorian era when you get writers like Catherine Beecher, the older sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, writing these books that were basically saying, you know, there's a divine duty in taking care of your private home. You know, this was a book written for housewives, that your individual choices for how you feed your family, how you raise your children, how you clean your clothes, these are individual choices that really reflect on your soul in a, in a Christian way. And so we've had this idea, again, very long held, but especially strong in America, especially, you know, in an era where a lot of like white, lonely housewives were settling in early in this in this country and, you know, freshly colonized areas far away from friends or family or any sort of community or help, that this was supposed to be something you did yourself, this this domestic work and that it was deeply, deeply personal. And it really trips us up when we have to think about how to share it. These these sets of decisions, raising your kids, feeding yourself, feeding your family, cleaning your home, decorating your home, these decisions that have become so um, integral to who we think we are. And it's really hard to like share those decisions with a group of other people. Did you, in all of the research that you put into this, and not necessarily manifesting itself in one of the episodes, did you ever find a place where you thought, I wouldn't mind trying that? I'd, I'd, I'd be tempted to I'd, I'd give that a couple of years of my life. 
You know, I have to say for all of these communities, there's always a moment where you're like, I think they were really onto something. I mean, you know, even the example of Oneida that we were talking about, I mean, there was a moment where they were really ahead of their time. It was kind of incredible. And sure, if I were alive in 1850, I would rather live there than maybe anywhere else in the United States as a woman. And so I guess that's the other thing as we were talking about what is failure and what is success and sort of the dark places that some of these communities can can go in pursuit of perfection that, you know, we in talking about their shortcomings, we really can't ignore, you know, some of some of the beauty in their attempts and some of the glimmers in which they were like really, really, really perhaps getting closer to the idea of utopia. Although, Akash, I think also a lot of that depends on uh, who the animating spirit uh, is. I mean, uh, Avery uh, told us about, I mean, Hitler actually had two different utopian experiments, uh, uh, <laughs> including one that she does an episode on. But he had another one that was going to be up in Norway, I think, in Trondheim or something. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I mean, uh, Avery gave us Jamestown. But Jonestown was also theoretically a utopian intentional community uh, until, of course, it pretty drastically wasn't. I mean, a lot of times we're trying trusting some kind of charismatic leader whose vision supposedly exceeds that of the outside world. The question is, what kind of person is that? And, and that, I guess, can be kind of the, the determining factor. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think one of the problems, you know, with, with the word utopia is it's a pretty squishy word that we can kind of stretch to encompass lots of things. I mean, it, you know, it depends on, on what your take on it is, but essentially if utopia means a radical alternative to the present, then it can encompass things that we think are great and things that we are think that we things that we think are horrible. So, like you know, Pol Pot and the killing fields of Cambodia are sometimes referred to as a utopia. Not not my idea of a utopia, but certainly was somebody's idea of a utopia. And as you say, um, yeah, the animating ideals, the person that sort of starts the place uh, has a big has a big role to play in determining the ultimate spirit of the place. I do think that in addition to the person or the specific ideal, I see this kind of the, the extent to which a place is tightly regimented and planned versus the extent to which it's a little loose and just allows for a little diversity and allows for the place to emerge in a kind of organic fashion plays a pretty key role. Because it's hard, as we know, it's hard to plan human nature and it's hard to plan the course of history. And so places that are overdetermined and often the overdetermination leads from an overly regimented or overly hierarchical leader uh, often end up in the worst places, in my view. Okay. And I just uh, have to say, yeah, go ahead. sorry. Go ahead. Oh, just uh, Margaret Atwood has this really useful turn of phrase, uh, utopia, and it's this idea that someone's utopia is someone else's dystopia, and someone's right. dystopia is always someone else's utopia. I do want to say I'm sitting one block away from Harriet Beecher's house, so we know from those oh. Beach, we know <laughs> we know we know from those Beecher sisters uh, here where I live. So before we go, before we leave this segment, uh, Avery, I want to go back to something that you said a little bit earlier, and I want you to flesh it out a little bit. You said that's why we have to keep trying. Uh, that's why we can't just say, you know, none of this stuff works. Let's not do it ever again. Give us a little bit more about that. What is what is your thinking there? Yeah, I just think that it's this idea of just like, I mean, I think it's really important to understand, you know, of course, study the those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. I think it's really important to talk about these experiments and look at the common patterns, which are really apparent. And, um, yeah, I think it's 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 worthwhile to try to go and think about other ways of living and other alternatives that could be possible 
to to create because you know I think the utopias and the experiments that fail get a lot of splash they're like a better story but I'm sure there are innumerable smaller arrangements that people have found that work for them that are very happy to not talk about it on a podcast and I think we have to explore newer richer alternatives to like the 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 script that we are told like this is how we are this is how we are to live. This is how we are to find happiness. I think culture expands and our lifestyles should be able to expand with it. That's Avery Truffleman, the host of the podcast, Nice Try, about people who tried to design a better world. That was the first season. Are we prepared to say what the second season is going to be or do I have to go to the big press conference? <laughs> it's about the domestic sphere and the oh. separation of the spheres. Oh, cool. I uh, can't wait. Uh, the first season is terrific. I, I really want people to, to check it out. All right. Thank you. Uh, we're going to say goodbye to Avery. We're going to uh, keep Akash uh, to talk in the second segment about the specifics of his book, uh, of this story, of this remarkable place called Oroville. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Savitri, book 10, the book of the double toilet. Canto 3. The Debate of Love and Death. This is part one. It's on pages 621 through 624. We have heard death's arguments, and we have heard death's reasoning. We have seen how he did his best to convince Savitri that her immortal love for Sachivan has no permanence and that finally everything ends in death because he created a universe where everything dies. Savitri understands very well what death is and what he is trying to do. That's actually from Auroville Radio. I discovered this uh, also this <laughs> this morning. Uh, and that actually was a uh, uh, broadcast of Auroville Radio two days ago. Uh, you're hearing someone named uh, Loretta read uh, discuss the work uh, of uh, Sri Aurobindo. 
um, uh, who is one of the who is the animating spirit uh, of Oroville, or at least the first animating spirit uh, of Oroville, and part of the source of of Oroville's name. Uh, with us today uh, is the, the author uh, Akash Kapoor, uh, author of Better to Have Gone, Love, Death, and the Quest for Utopia uh, in Oroville. Uh, all right, so. Um, We've been slinging this name around now for uh, 20 or 25 minutes. Uh, I think maybe we better explain exactly what, what Oroville is. Uh, can you give that a go? Sure, I can give it a go. Um, so, you know, what you just what you just cited from there was was uh, from an, an epic poem by an Indian freedom fighter turned philosopher and um, kind of yogi named Sri Aurobindo. Um, and he was he was kind of a mystic. He he formed this uh, notion of integral yoga, which I can explain in more detail later. But basically, it was a reworking of of traditional Indian thought. Um, and he had this uh, spiritual partner who helped build up a spiritual community around him. Her she was a French woman. Her name was Mira Alfasa. She became known as the mother. And so she created Oroville in 1968. Uh, it was conceived of as this new town, this new project that would that would function as a, a laboratory for uh, Sri Aurobindo's philosophy and Sri Aurobindo's yoga. Um, international community, it drew people from around the world. It currently has about 3,000 people from uh, around, I think, over 50 countries uh, spread out over a pretty big area in uh, South India. And and let's mention that integrative yoga because we're not talking about classes where people show up and spend X with their water bottles. We're talking about something that's much more comprehensive that is in a way a, a thought utopia that turns into a physical utopia. Yeah, I, I you know my publishers maybe include a footnote about this in in the U.S. edition to explain that yoga in this context doesn't mean uh, stretching exercises. Uh, it's it's much more a kind of aesthetic or a way of being, um, not dissimilar maybe to sort of ancient Greek you know, ethics uh, in life. Uh, so it's a much more integrated approach to life. And the integral yoga, which was, which was uh, again, Sri Aurobindo's conception, is it's an attempt to rework traditional Indian yoga or spiritual thought to update it in a way for uh, the 20th century when he conceived of it. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the things it did, traditional yoga is often based on a very ascetic uh, path and a, a sort of a retreat from the world. And here there was an effort to infuse everyday life with spirituality, with the sanctity of spirituality. So it's very, he has this, this saying where he says, all life is yoga. So it's very, uh, it's very connected to the world. Also, there was a very strong evolutionary strand in it, uh, which I think of almost as a kind of Nietzschean strand. It was this idea that man is not the final being, that man is, 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 is a step to a higher being, uh, and that moreover, that man can will him or herself to that higher being uh, through the practice of yoga. And, and there is a sense that, uh, and I think you alluded to this uh, in the first segment too, that that kind of um, ascendant and transcendent uh, quality uh, of the the thought system is almost is without bounds uh, towards the end of her life. The mother uh, is actually kind of retreats. She's in her 80s. She's still playing tennis, uh, but she kind of retreats so that she can kind of see if she can explore some way to, to transcend death itself, right? Yeah, that that does end up happening. I mean, there was always this view that we, if if one can will oneself to a higher form of life, then hypothetically, at least, immortality would be some kind of end game. Um, and so, yeah, there is this effort um, it, towards the end of her life, as you say, she retreats to her room and she comes up with this notion of cellular transformation, which is that somehow she's going to transfer her, transform her cells and infuse them with with a spirit of of immortality. 
So you and your wife grew up there. Uh, you uh, both left and, and then came back. I guess maybe I'd like to ask you, just for starters, when you were growing up there, were you thinking, wow, this is not the way everybody else is growing up? Uh, or were you pretty insulated from that? No, you're pretty aware of that. Um, you know, one of the things that there with a lot of these utopian communities is there tends to be a pretty big dissonance between the stated philosophy and ideals of the community and the way life's actually playing out on the ground. So a lot of the, the stuff we've just talked about, the integral yoga, uh, cellular transformation, I mean, this, this was certainly there and it was certainly, uh, people would talk about it around us, but you know, when I was a kid, it wasn't, I wouldn't say that it was part of my day-to-day -day life. So we didn't have a sense that this is what we were living or that the adults of our world were trying to live out, but you certainly had a sense that you were part of a world that was trying to create something very different and that looked very different because it's not like we were just, you know, trapped in this little bubble. I mean, I had grandparents uh, in rural Minnesota. I'd go visit them every few years. And of course, life in a farming town in Minnesota was pretty different from life in my uh, rural South Indian utopia. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And there's also, you had a great line. It's not, not in the book. I think it's in our, in our article. I could be wrong. You said utopia is really good at rebranding existing behaviors. So there's a way in which, you know, the, we all live a certain way. And maybe ultimately the community has to say, oh, yeah, that actually really kind of does fit in with what we think. Yeah. Um, I think that line was from, from an article I wrote. Um, look, utopia is often... I mean, always end up running up against the reality of human nature. And so inherent to every utopia is the idea that somehow you can remold human nature, that you can reshape what humanity is. And that's a pretty tough slog. I'm not saying that that's not a, a noble aspiration. I mean, we'd all like to reshape human nature in, in many ways. You know, we're not we're not the greatest creatures. Um, but yeah, you keep running up against things and, and the things you run up against are the things you'd expect. So uh, money, acquisition, sex, family, um, and so, you know, in terms of rebranding human nature, like the economy is a good example. We talked about this earlier. Uh, you you create uh, instead of having money, you give everybody an account, um, and then they, they 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 charge it with money. But when they go around the community, they use the account number rather than money. Well, technically, you're not using money, but you know, it's pretty close. Right. You might as well be. So this book, we should say, begins on the most haunting possible note. Uh, it begins with the very mysterious and not particularly well-documented uh, death uh, of your wife's mother uh, and her adoptive father, uh, John. By the way, uh, for those of you listening here in Connecticut, there are a lot of Fisher's Island scenes uh, in this book. So your your own landscape will be connected to Oroville in, in India. And I don't want to talk too much about that because I think there there's it's hard to talk about without introducing spoilers and and I don't want to do that but this was an investigation by you of something that your wife didn't entirely or didn't really at all know the truth of or or understand and I guess I'm sort of wondering as you learned more about it without sort of saying what it actually was did did that how did that change for both of you the feeling about the place you'd grown up well, first of all, thank you for not uh, doing the spoilers. I think you're pretty much the only uh, radio show I've done or the only you know review that hasn't given away spoilers. So, so thank you for that, because there is a lot of mystery I'd like to preserve in the book. Um, it, it did change things. I mean, one of, one of the, you know, one of the, the, the key things that, that we sort of unraveled as we were picking out the story was that these, these deaths that take place in the book, and I won't get into how exactly they happen, but we'd always seen them as 
individual deaths, two people that had kind of taken things to an extreme and died. Uh, and one of the key things that we unpacked, I say we, because my wife and I very much did this together, um, was understanding how these deaths really were very much linked to broader collective or communal processes and things that had been going on in the community, things that had been going on in utopia. And so that clash between individuals and individual fates and then the larger collective and the larger ideals uh, was, was something that really came out of my research, if you want to call it that, for the book. And it made me think really hard about the, it made me rethink the idea of perfection and the pursuit of perfection and the pursuit of radical alternatives. And as noble as that impulse and those impulses often are, the terrible, terrible human cost that, that individuals often pay for them. So I think one of the other surprises for people, because in fact we have this kind of um, latent narrative uh, in our heads about all this kind of stuff, that that these communities uh, would be immersive uh, and, and that if you left one, you wouldn't go back. I mean, I think we all, <laughs> I don't know why we think our own society is so great, because most of the time we don't think that. But that once you're out of Oroville, once you're deciding which uh, funky Brooklyn restaurant you're going to eat at tonight, uh, there's going to be no part of you that says, hey, actually, maybe I should go back there. Um, although, in fact, John, the person I just referenced, the person with the Fisher's Island connection, is essentially in that position. Maybe I should go back, and he does. So, um, I don't know. Can you? Is there a way you can articulate how it is that the two of you decided you would go back? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason for that narrative is that um, people often think of utopias or intentional communities, and what they think of are cults. And there's a kind of mm -hmm. conceptual slippage there that I've noticed sometimes in the reception to this book. And there's an assumption that a place like Oroville um, must be a cult. And I think, you know, cults are a different creature. It's a different category of place. So um, these are not these are not terrible places. They're places that have many shortcomings, particularly if you measure them up against their stated ideals. They often fail to live up to that. There's a lot of hypocrisy. But, you know, as you su suggested, we have that. That's that's true of the world. That's true of any society. And more than that, I mean, I have a line in the book somewhere where I say that children of utopian communities are like exiles. Um, and what I mean by that, and I expand it in the book, is that I think if you've grown up in these places with the idea that the world can be or should be different, then you grow up and, and, and you realize that it's a lot harder than you thought and there's all kinds of failure and hypocrisy in it. But somehow that ideal is very much in your imagination and it's very hard to escape that ideal and it's very hard to just sort of walk away from the conception of an alternative. Um, and I guess that's one of the reasons my wife and I, after living in the United States and you know having pretty successful lives, um, we, we moved back. And I don't think it was very conscious. It's not like we were rejecting the society and moving back. And in fact, we kept moving, going back and forth a lot. Um, but yeah, I think that sort of seeds in your imagination, this, this possibility of a better world. You know, reading your book, I was uh, constantly, I had ringing through my head that uh, uh, Nelson Mandela quote, uh, I don't have it right in front of me. Oh, yes, I do. There can be no keener revelation of a society sold in the way in which it treats its children. Um, ch children and utopian communities, well, I mean, you alluded to it in the first segment, uh, can be an uncomfortable fit. There are times in this book where, I mean, children really are not safe. One child is, in fact, doomed, uh, and the signs of that doom precede the actual doom. I mean, there are poisonous snake bites and fires and uh, and I'm just thinking this is just not a good situation. So maybe you could say a little bit about that, about, about about children in a place like that. Children are often victims of these places. And I think this goes back 
to the point I was making earlier about the human cost of ideals. So I think, you know, some of the stuff you're alluding to there is more specific to the physical terrain and, and sort of physical physical dangers that, that people faced when they set up Orville. And I would put that in a slightly different category. One of the things that, that, that I write about in the book that I think was a very dark period in the community's history is when the schools were shut down mm-hmm. um, in the name of ideals and in the, na- in, in the name of a, a kind of radical alternative vision of, of how kids should grow up and what they should be exposed to and, and reinventing education along with everything else. Um, and that, you know, that's left a lot of scars. That's left a lot of um, people who, who many of whom still live in Orville and actually love the community and are dedicated to the community, but but feel haunted by those years where they were denied an, an education. Right. I mean, there is there is a, a period where there's violence. Uh, there's questions about education. There's issues about whether there's enough food, really, whether it's even beyond kind of subsistence for food. And I mean, we're kind of alluding to that time of schism, too. Um, and, you know, listening to that, uh, I think, wow, uh, utopia. Uh, but somehow or other, this this place this community did push through all of that. I assume you think of Oroville now as a successful community. I don't know if you think of it as a successful utopian community. Yeah, I definitely don't think of it as a successful utopian community. I think of it as as a fairly successful community. I think of it as a real place that exists that has uh, many of the same flaws that, you know, anywhere else in the world has. Um, and that and that has also been successful in many regards. So I'm not an, I'm not like a real idealist about it. Uh, but I think I, I do think that it stepped into some pretty dark places, as these communities often do. Uh, and I think it's admirable that it stepped away from the edge of the precipice and kept going. Um, I mean, you know, I, I say somewhere in the book that, that these communities are like human beings. They have life cycles and that and that Orville is sort of at its middle age right now. So I think those very intense years of rampant idealism, if you were, were were the teenage years when when things went a little too far and everybody had the right answer and everybody knew everything. And somehow Orville managed to push through those years and it's middle age now. And and so it's a little bit less idealistic. The fires burn a little less brightly and some people do bemoan that. Um, You know, personally, I'll take idealism when it's a little tempered over just like burning, raging idealism. Right. There's actually a kind of I thought found chilling line there in terms of everybody thinking uh, that they knew everything. That one of the figures in the schism says, "Truth is schismatic." <laughs> I thought, well, that's an interesting way. Uh, yeah, of, that's uh, a very Manichaean view of seeing the world, and that unfortunately is is what many such communities often descend into. And again, I think Orville headed in that direction, and there were certainly groups or factions within Orville that would have taken it in that direction. Um, but here it is, 53 years later, you know, and, and it's it's much less sort of schismatic or Manichaean than it used to be. Right. We have to stop there. But Akash Kapoor, what a book. Uh, better to have gone. I love death and the quest for utopia in Auroville. I really do recommend people. Uh, this, this, this is your August read right here. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you so much for that. All right. So we are going to spend the final segment with one of my favorite websites in the world, Atlas Obscura. Uh, because really, you just have to go there and type in utopian and see what happens. All alone, it makes for a good day for some serious reflection and massive rationalization for contemplating the future of the future and the last of the past and wondering if you could ever forgive me, darling, all the trouble that I put to you. And if I could forget all those questions that I never asked, and if I could forgive her. Temporary weight gain due to excess of water retention.
All right, I'm pressed for time here, so I quickly have to thank Kat Pastor, our amazing technical producer, and uh, WizKid uh, Lily Tyson. She's the producer of this particular episode. Uh, we want to end with, uh, as I said, one of my favorite websites, and really kind of appropriate because this is a website that uh, also had a charismatic, almost cult-like leader, uh, David Plotz, uh, and somehow or other has managed to sort of survive after his departure. Um, people who listen a lot know David Plotz is on this show a lot. Uh, so uh, joining us now is Samir Patel, uh, editor-in-chief of Atlas Obscura. Uh, welcome to our show. And let me just say, first of all, I thought about it immediately when Lily pitched the show because Atlas Obscura really kind of documents oddities, oddities and anomalies and strange things all over the world. And whenever you travel, you want to find out what they know about it that nobody else knows. And so, Samir, it is the case that, I mean, you guys had a utopia week, right, where you just sort of showed off all the failed utopias you could find. Uh, yeah, we, we, we did. It was actually before my time. But um, yeah, there, there's a, there is a definite theme that runs through our database of wondrous and sometimes odd and strange places around the world. Um, that there are these locations of where there were failed utopias in part because they have wonderful stories behind them or sometimes really interesting architecture that that people can still visit today. Right. I mean, one of them, and I've been to this place, Arcosanti, uh, it's in Arizona, a little bit north of Phoenix. Um, and, and it has all of that, right? It has incredibly compelling architecture and a pretty interesting uh, story. Uh, once again, a single visionary person, an architect. Yeah, in this case, it was an architect, uh, an Italian-American architect named Paolo Soleri, who in the 1970s wanted to create, I think it was probably less conceived as a utopia and more as a kind of architectural urban planning experiment uh, out in the Arizona desert called Arcosanti. And he had built it on this idea of, you know, a, a new vision of of urban life uh, that he called arcology, a, a mixture of archaeology and ecology. And it's, you know, it's still out there today and there are still people who who live there and thousands of people who've uh, passed through to volunteer their time to help help build it. Yeah, the population has dropped. I think it was supposed to house 5,000 people. There's usually around 50 to 150 people there these days. Although, not unlike Oneida, uh, maybe we can circle back to Oneida in, in just a second, mm -hmm. but not unlike Oneida, they fi figured out a consumer product to help them keep alive. They have these amazing bells uh, that they make there, bells and wind chimes and stuff like that. And uh, and, and those are also still being sailed, sold, and the money goes to the Soleri Foundation. It's probably worth noting also, you know, Soleri is unsuccessful. He runs through his money too fast. Things just don't really work out. The place has a kind of deserted Ursula Le Guin novel feeling to it. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, he was he's essentially right. I mean, if we if we had figured out how to do the stuff that he wanted to do, we would be using photovoltaic paneled houses and wind farms as primary sources of power. We would probably have less of a problem with climate change if we were more solarian, right? Yeah, his, his vision was, you know, in a academic sense, like a beautiful one of high density uh, urban housing that's more connected to the environment around it, of efficiency and uh, community interaction in a way that's sort of that that's natural and organic. And um, yeah, it just it, it does sound like a beautiful place. I think obviously there's complications to living in a place like that, particularly, excuse me, particularly in the desert. Uh, but it is um, as articulated something that would uh, 
be a beautiful vision if it, if it could be implemented on a wider scale. Right. Now, Soleri, you know, well, first of all, Arkasani is still kind of there, kind of wheezing along. Yeah. Uh, some of the other places uh, don't last that long uh, at all. Uh, and, and one of them, the Mary Hill Museum uh, and Stonehenge, There's, it's not Stonehenge itself, there's sort of a Stonehenge replica. I mean, this is one where the utopian community really didn't last very long. It's just the stuff that got built that, that kind of hung around, right? Yeah, I'm not sure the utopian community ever happened there. Uh, so Mary Hill was built by a, a man named Sam Hill in uh, in Washington State, and he he was a Quaker and had had intended to make in this uh, in this sort of remote uh, region, not desert, but sort of more more mountainous, a a Quaker farming community, which in its own way is a kind of utopian community and one that's persisted because there are, are still Quakers today, and they've have, have changed and a lot of wonderful social causes. and uh, But I don't know that anyone ever really showed up. And the, the community that he built there it, it burned down, but the manor house in which he had uh, planned to live himself with his family uh, is now the Mary Hill Museum, uh, which is a very interesting, uh, eclectic kind of museum. It has Art Nouveau items and uh, Native American items, and also a, a big portion of the collection of uh, Queen Marie of Romania, who was friends with Hill, um, and there is a, as you say, replica of Stonehenge, which he had built as a uh, monument to the fallen of World War One. So that was sort of a utopia that never got a chance to make its uh, make its presence felt. I think you know it. It is obviously there's sort of a uh, a fascination for us with the, the way that th- these things often do have a little bit of an air of, of ineffectuality, as Akash Kapoor would say, that, you know, there's a specter that hangs over the places and it's the specter of failure. But there's also, I think, you know, when we travel, I mean, at least when I travel, I don't want to see a life like the one that I live, right? I don't want to see more Walgreens or Rite-Aids or, you know, yeah. shell stations or, I mean, in a way, and this is very much the spirit of Atlas Obscura, but especially with these kinds of places, these are places where people tried to live differently. So there's something very attractive about that, right? I think that's exactly right. I mean, part of what we love to highlight at Atlas Obscura or what we think of as hidden histories. It's and those can be, you know, in the Walgreens parking lot because something interesting had happened there in the past, but also, as you say, in these places that are architecturally interesting that have this backstory because they are attempts for people to find another way to live. And I think that understanding the way that other people have lived and and, and would want to live and the ideals that form communities is something that enriches our experience when we visit them, which is why I think that some of these sites of utopian experiments or urban planning experiments continue to be really interesting to people and places that people want to visit. All right. We're kind of out of time, but Atlas Obscura has plenty of time for you. So get on the site and yeah, there's a whole Utopia Week tab that you can click and mind out about even more of these kinds of things. Samir Patel is the editor-in-chief of Atlas Obscura. Uh, thanks to everybody who listened today, and to Kat Pastor once again, to Lily Tyson, WizKid producer. She did it again. This has been a, a great episode. Thanks for listening, as I said before, and we will see you tomorrow. What a wonderful world Yes, I think to myself
what a wonderful 